Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. NTS. You are listening to Don't Assume. I'm Zakia, and in this podcast, I'm going to be talking to artists, producers, and musicians about their pioneering approaches to their lives and music. The good thing is, the mixes was never the issue because the mixing was a live mix under certain vibes. But to be able to pull that mix apart, you know, and set it back together, it makes me just say, wow. <laughs> it's just where I want to be. I have stuff with Leroy Sibbles, Max Romeo, Clive Hunt, Scratch, um, Johnny Osborne. It's just a lot of a lot of stuff that needs to be presented. In this episode, I'm chatting to the record producer, studio owner, and legend of the Bronx reggae scene, Mr. Lloyd Barnes, aka Bull Wacky. His studio and record label, Wackies, has achieved cult status with a global network of fans. Born in Jamaica, Bull Wacky started out as a tailor, making clothes for the early sound system selectors like Stranger Cole, Ken Booth, Alton Ellis and Peter Tosh, before becoming a sound engineer at Treasure Isle Studio and later at Studio One. After moving to New York in the 1970s, he secured a safe union wage job in construction, but his heart was in music. He took his savings, quit the day job, and against everyone's advice, set up New York's first reggae studio. Wacky's House of Music was launched in 1976. The studio has moved around due to rent hikes and changing needs, but the spirit of Wacky's has stayed strong. It's from Bull Wacky's home studio that I'm talking to him today. It's such an honour to, to speak with you. I'm a massive fan of the label and um, of your work, so very, very excited to hear some of your stories. And um, maybe could you just start off by telling us like, what your standard, typical day is for you in New York? At this time, I'm just focusing on waking up, take care of my morning stuff in my house because, like I say, uh, I moved the studio created a workspace change up and I'm glad I did that because for the first time I get a chance to pay attention to so much I'm focused right now and I feel really really great that's that's exactly what you want to hear at 11 15 <laughs> <laughs> feeling focused and feeling good um so you've got the home studio now it's better for me you know I could stay on top of what's happening at home and um, be there if I'm needed. And at the same time, I get the opportunity to move stuff from tape to digital, focusing on presenting my stuff how I really wanted it the first time. <laughs> and it, mm, For the first time? For the first time, I feel really good about 
what I'm doing. I've always felt good, but I mean, when you hand off, it's like a relay. When you hand off your work, it comes and you're not totally happy. You feel proud of your effort, but you keep pushing for better results. It's not about the money, it's about how I feel about how it sounds. That's daily. Sometimes I'm working from 6, 7 in the morning and I might sign out 2, 3, 4 a.m. Three days of that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really, <laughs> I really keep pushing. And I mean, you've been, you've been working at this for so, for so long now. And I wanted to you know, find out a little bit about, about those early days when you first arrived in New York, when you first set up your sound system. What was that, what was that like? Take us back to those, you know, those first forays into, into setting up your sound system. When I was setting up the sound system, I was tying steel in New York, you know, on bridges, new building. But at the same time, I was saving everything to get to start. I probably started at the right time, and sometimes I think maybe, just maybe, I should have waited some more because um, stuff I needed to do what I do. But everything works for those who believe. And I know that it's not about how much money because I work to pay the rent. I couldn't cut it myself and stuff. So with the sound, it was a door. But the reason why we put the sound away is my intention was to share the music. The sound gave me the ability to work locally and present it and feel good about it. But then I really wasn't making music for just a neighborhood. So I just say, you know what happened? We get rid of the sound system, focus on what I really want to do. And the rest is history. I've been just going, going. I used to do a poster in Jamaica. I used to be a tailor. I know a lot of stuff, you know, I worked. You had to follow your passion. Yeah, so now in my space, I could do stuff from what I've learned and practiced over the years, but at the same time, just to make myself feel comfortable. But I love what I do, and I'm always going to keep learning. I'm not the person who says um, it can't be. Don't care what happened, it's not. They can't be as good as before. I believe that each generation, they're always going to be wise people to kick the ball forward. I'm really, really happy about the improvement in the digital world. It gives me the opportunity to sit in my space and present stuff the way I feel about it. So there's a lot going on. I'm working like a nonstop train right now. <laughs> That's good to hear. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. And I guess there are sort of moments in your journey that kind of catapulted you forward. So you were, you had this sound system. What made you decide to, to give that up and focus on, on the studio? I really wanted to produce, make the music, learn what I could, play what I could, and keep on pushing. At that time, everybody... Like my family felt like I'm losing my mind. How could I make a decision like that, give up my job and clean out my savings? But (laughs) I was the happiest person. So today, the same people who think I went crazy, today they congratulate me. We're all going to struggle sometimes, but keep your focus on what you really want to do. And believe me, it will happen.
Well, I bet there's plenty of people all around the world that are very happy that you made that decision to uh, to set up the studio. Well, this podcast is called Don't Assume and we are talking to people specifically who have taken those risks, you know, taken an unconventional approach to their career, to their to their life in music. And as you say, you know, you had this safe job and then you made this decision to kind of save up all of your money and invest it in this studio. Can you tell me about about that moment and, you know, what were the first bits of pieces of equipment that you bought? Did it feel like a big risk? Was it an exciting moment at that time? Just Paint a picture for us of the first days of, of the Wacky Studio. When you come out with a brand new drum set, so guitar heads, there wasn't much digital keyboard around at that time. But I got myself a stand-up piano and I had a, a B3 organ, the real stuff. The thing is, I was working with four-track quarterings, familiar with same type of stuff that Scratch used to use. That kind of created a more link to because uh, I had the opportunity to be the only person who could accommodate Scratch. <laughs> I had the opportunity to produce Scratch with Max Romeo on a project I did that was, at the time, was focused on the Japanese era. The reintroduction of those early stuff gonna sound so amazing. I'm listening to some already. I catch myself sitting and really feeling justified. So I'm a happy camper. I feel <laughs> blessed and I'm glad I'm alive to hear it the way it is right now. And that's why I keep working. Absolutely. To make sure you get the best <laughs> and a part of what I got to offer. And um, I'm all right with that. So tell me about your relationship with, with, with Lee Scratch Perry because well, you lived together for a while, is that right? Well, yeah, in a little bit. I was in Jersey for a moment. We lost the place. So far, I was there for a moment. So Scratch used to live there when he's, we had some stuff to do. And that's when I made the Max Romer album and I made Satan Kick the Bucket with Scratch. And it was a great learning experience. It was... You know, it took me to certain parts of the world that wasn't really on my focus. And um, like in the beginning, I really wasn't planning to do the singing, no singing. But sometimes you do stuff because you're not going to sit around and wait for nobody. <laughs> That's how come I wind up singing a few stuff and I wind up go around a few places in the world and perform them. But I just didn't want to keep doing that because um, I believe in audience participation. I have some great experience by traveling and seeing it, experience it. But my best is when I'm trying to produce, whether it's a live show or a recording. I'm really curious about that area. You said that you and Scratch, you know, you travelled the world, he, he opened up your eyes to different experiences. What was he like as a character? What was he like to work with? He's such an incredible character. I'm sure you've got some stories that you can dish us. You could look at it two ways. It was a fun moment. I know him, I know where his talent is, but it gave me a chance to see the things we can't control, you know, in our lives, but at the same time, we focus on our contribution, you know, so... He used to, he comes downstairs to work, and that's a long time ago, 
he play with herb more than he smoke it. He deck, you know what I mean? He, I wouldn't say he's a smoker like that, but he used the herb to decorate. He stick it here, stick it there. He always have it to stick around. Man. You know, he'll come down and say, this is a guitar that has no string. I believe that if you're working with somebody, you know who they are, you know their talent, you focus on that and try to enjoy what they have to offer. Not funny and stupid, but think that it could be the other way around. You know what you're doing as an engineer and a producer, but somebody don't understand why you smile all the while, even when there's no joke. He's nice to work with. He's not miserable. He got ideas. The phrases he uses is like you. The, some of the sounds he makes, he make it so easy, and it's just, it sounds you probably your phrases Bob Marley made. He could know from earlier that it's an influence from scratch. I have a lot of love and respect for him and his journey. That's a part of my life. He's a funny person. We get up, he go out, he, he has on the boots, like a Timberland, and it's full of various buttons. And he said he want to go to the shoe store, we go out, we buy a new Timberland, and before he put it on, he take all the decorations off the next one <laughs> and put all the stuff, you know? For me, I could enjoy Scratch because of who he is. You can't expect a person to be what you want them to be. <laughs> you know, so it was fun and a learning experience I shared and I had a great time. Well, in your career, you've had the opportunity to, you know, work with some incredible, incredible names. And even when you started off, right, you were, as a young person, before you moved to, to New York, you were working at Treasure Isle in Studio One, right? What, what was that? What was that well, like? I spent a lot of time around Treasure Isle mainly because um, I was close friends with Stranger Cole and Ken Booth. They're from Denham Town. I'm from right above Ghost Town, which is jungle, but same era. I used to hang with Stranger Cole a lot, Ken Booth. I used to leave from where I was to hang out there. I used to sit at jukebox, writing out stuff for Ken. He later came to Europe and improve his English and his whole thing. But in the beginning, he was operating on a brain that holds stuff that you don't read. You could listen and maintain, you know? I'll always respect Ken Wood and Stranger Cole. We spent a lot of early days, their rivals, you know? Because I come from the same era, Alton Ellis, Lee Rice, everybody, you know? I'm a product of that year I was born in Lyonine, they call it in Jamaica, you know, and that's North Street, you know. So it's like growing up, if I hear a studio one, I know it's a studio one. I hear a treasure hall, I know it's a treasure hall. I know what Prince Buster does, because the first time I recorded a song was for Prince Buster. I sang two songs for Prince Buster. I was a friend of guy named Bobby used to work for Prince Buster in the store. Buster was pretty cool. So that's how I met Muhammad Ali, because he drove to Trenchtown to get something I had that I got from America that they wanted to play a tape, 
with Ali. So I just happened to be there and I said, 15 minutes sleep. And somebody said, yo, you want to go sing something? I'm going to go in and sing. In those days, I was singing nursery rhyme. I sang King Ganguly and a song named Time Is Hard. Time is hard, my friend, I don't know why. It must be cut, you know. And the next one about King Ganguly, Guli, 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 Washrat. It was the first time I sang anything in a studio. What was the atmosphere like back then? I mean, like, you're reading off all these names and I'm just imagining being there like, and seeing, yeah, Ken Booth there, Bob Marley passing by. Like, you know, what did it feel like at the time? It must have been very exciting for you. Yeah, because it was one of the best non-violent part of Jamaica. When they started the Rastafarian movement in Jamaica, it made headlines, crime rate drop because people was talking to people, people was listening, trying to understand. You're listening to Don't Assume with me, Zakia, and Lloyd Bulwacki. So that time spent, you know, in Jamaica in the early days and all the all that experience, all these incredible, you know, talents around you and working with them and alongside them. How did that influence you when it came to setting up your own studio, you know, figuring out your own sound in the Bronx? There really was no reggae studio. There was a um, band that had a rehearsal space in Brooklyn. The Buccaneers was the name of that band. They had a four-trap machine. They used to record in the rehearsal room. Little stuff wasn't really set up for a studio. Outside of that, you have to rent a studio that's an American setup. Along my journey, I've always keep working just to get there. I know that's my mission. My family didn't like the idea of me just <laughs> dropping the wire. But today, they really see me as an example that if you believe you should follow your dreams, it's not going to be easy for you as it is for others, especially when you start without any financial input. You have to pay bills to survive, but you still got that on your mind, you know? It's like you want a camera, a mic, something to make what you present better. It's like a sharing tool, you know? I do what I do because I really love what I do. And I've been patient. We have a lot of people who are trying to get them to adjust. It's like a school, you know? Some may learn, some may fail and try again while others was on a good part and they just drop out. A lot of people is in the game, it's about money. If I listen to people, they tell me, oh, it's in the beginning, if I don't record in Jamaica, it's not going to work. You shouldn't put made in New York. You know, kind of different things people approach me with. And I say, but, you know, it's like, I want to do this. You know, I think anywhere you are, as long as you have electricity and equipment, you got the opportunity. So telling me it can't happen unless I'm in Jamaica just don't make sense to me. I fought it out and became a rescue place for so many musicians who came America needed somewhere to go. Sometimes they get stranded for different reasons. I accommodate them. There's not money to have 10 hotel rooms, so we stay in the studio and we keep the one room so everybody have a place to go. Stay fresh. 
what was the kind of vibe at the Wacky Studio as a kind of physical space? You know, you've talked about people coming and steep, sleeping on the sofas or on the floor, or whatever. You know, was there a kind of big community around around the studio? Yeah, we we because I used to have a record store in the front, but it was like conflict with the studio. That's another thing that people think I'm crazy because I lock the store down because. When people come in there to buy a record and they start to play, you know, it, it's what's going against my will. But it was helping to pay the bill. So when I got rid of that, the road got more bumpy, but it was the best thing I did. What makes me feel good is people write me, people reach out to me from all different parts of the world and tell me thanks. If I don't win the latter, I don't miss nothing, you know. Uh, it's not about riches, it's about accomplishment. What I do have taken me to great parts of the world, meet a lot of people. That's what I like. People all around the world kind of contact you and give you the praise for this incredible music that you have made. And I, I kind of want to ask you to describe a little bit like what that sound is. What is the wacky sound? Because, you know, it's a sound that so many people love and it is unique to other kind of sounds that were coming out of Kingston are coming out of London how would you start to describe the signature wacky sound was it something you were conscious of at the time trying to create I was using a Tascam it was only four tracks if I record on three tracks and I'm not done I got to mix three tracks into one to get space for the overdubbing it's a lot of calculation so when you put something together, it's like you got to have a, like a pre-balance. Like, so it, it, it's already set up to finish in a different way. The whole drum set, you know, is on one track at that time. And whatever you start the rhythm with on the third track. Now you mix in those three tracks onto the one tracks that's left. You know what I mean? And then you start overdubbing. It's a total different thing, you know? And so that alone in itself changed the whole characteristic of the music because to present it now, you can't use a chain, you can't multiply it. You just have four tracks. On the outside of that now, I would feed from the auxiliary into different things and try to bring those sound back on different channels and kind of create a spread and you know I love scratch I love studio one you know but in the era that I came from treasure I always have that interior network it seems like it just was more overdubbing inside even when they work with members of the scatterlights, it was it wasn't always a full scatterlight. But for for studio one, it was different. It was more a full scatterlight, you know. But Tommy McCook was always with Cheryl. He controlled the all arrangement while you singing. He's writing. I remember in the early days, Joe White was there. Don't be. I mean, stranger called Ken Booth. I think by being around certain people, it laid in my spirit uh, and that's why I probably do what I do. All these people must have, you know, massively influenced you. Yeah, it's because I see that man at an early age. I remember when they built Federal Studio, the same studio 
Maybe let's do that for four tracks, because there was only two tracks they had before. So they build this big building for four track, half inch four track. I remember that. And then they move on to one inch eight track. And today the rest is history, you know? <laughs> so all credit to the now generation who have used the tools that was created from another generation to move the wall to where it is right now. And it gives mm-hmm. everybody an opportunity if they really want to do something and experiment on their own and find out what they want to do. So You talked about, you know, instantly being able to recognise like the character of a Treasure Isle sound versus a Studio One sound. Um, were there artists from Jamaica that really wanted to record with you at your studio for your sound? Yeah, because um, I know, uh, imagine you have a fourth track. You admire Scratch for what he does. I happen to work with him on his stuff. I see how he do. I know I have to take the best way to work is to work how you feel, not try to build it, transmit it into what you do. It sometimes is a tough journey, but the result really is the answer. Every time you do something and you have that sense of accomplishment, you don't think how much you're going to get. Your body feels relaxed. You accomplish that. It has nothing to do with what you eat, drink, smoke. I respect all of these people, and to me, they're just different characters. You've obviously worked with a lot of established artists, but also, you know, through your studio, you know, work as a producer, you also were involved in building up artists, you know, and kind of giving them their their shot. And I know the Lovejoys, I love their records. I know that they're a big favourite here on, on NTS. So could you tell us a little bit about how you discovered them and what that kind of journey was like working with them? Now, the song that I present that sounds so much like Lovejoys, it's really clouded. I really love and respect Claudette in every way. She's a humble woman. She has her journey like all of us. When they came, they were like four. She had another sister, Claudette, that was in it. She went to the military. So eventually it was three people. At that time, they weren't the Lovejoys. When they came to Wackers, they never was recording, but they already took the name from... I remember clearly it was like the salt that say crystals. So when they came there, they wanted, Claudia wanted to name the crystals, but Casey White was working for Brad, so Casey White is the one who brought them to me because I was recording him in those days. So they came up with the name and we decided that's what we're going to use, the low joys. The rest is history. Who are some of the favourite people that came through Wacky Studio? I know Coxon, apparently, he was, he was, uh, he had your back when you got things started up. I used to see him once a week in the Bronx when he was living here. Before that, if he comes up, he used to come around, check the record shop. Roland and Fonsa used to travel around a lot to them. A lot of times we sit in the back of my place and I used to play... In the studio one, I just did that. I, I played for him and he would say, Jackson, you didn't do the part, man. And, you know, certainly he was a real character, you know. I spent a lot of time with Roland too, you know. Cause he really just to check me all the time. I had a lot of respect for him. 
I remember the first time I saw them playing ska, Jackie Matou, Lloyd Burrett. To see that stage for the first time, it was amazing talent display. That's why the history is like that. You know, a lot of people with great talent was focused. Today, you know, I think some of us focus while some of us just think of shortcut. You know? And I think don't care how well something is cooked, if it's not seasoned to a certain taste, it has no identity. I think I want to be me, and I love the sound of a lot of different people who produce, but, but I love the Wacker style. That's why it's in me, and we're living in a world like now, chucks that I, of my own, that I made from early days. For the first time in history, I could take that two-track and bust it wide open and have the opportunity to, to mix it now with the bass and a different track. That's a blessing. You, you know, you've talked about the fact that you're very much active, you're feeling the best about the music um, that you ever have, and, and that you're working on remastering some lost tapes. Is that right? How did they what, How did they get lost, and how did you find them again? I had them in, um, in a storage, but it was a close friend of mine when he lived out in Jersey. At a cold storage where he kept stuff for Les Paul, so I used to keep my tape there. And he suddenly just disappeared. Eventually, I spoke with his wife. She said they're not together anymore. She don't know what happened. And I got all these tapes and don't know where they're at. No information. I'm wondering if the guy is alive or in jail. I don't know what happened. Till suddenly, years later, I start getting emails and calls from people telling me, oh, they got your tapes. Tapes you're looking for. We see them selling. So I say... Action in Florida, I call up the people and try to find out how they come by it. Who gave it to them? You know, you know what I mean? Because they call Japan, they call Germany, they call the world trying to sell it. They wouldn't answer me for a while. And he wouldn't take my call, none at all. Then it showed up at an auction in a different state. I think it was Texas. You know, I call the people and... Um, I spoke to the guy. I explained the whole thing. So he said he's going to pull it from the action. So at the end of the time, I call him and we work something out. It cost me over six grand to get back my own stuff. But, like, it worked more than that to me, so. You're remastering them, is that right? You're going through them all and you're fixing them up as you'd like to hear them now? Yeah, I got, I got all the two tracks, all the four tracks. Now I'm working on the 8th and the 16th track, and I got loads of them. I'm going to take my one-inch machine to them, and they're going to start there. What's it like listening back to these recordings that you made 20, 30 years ago? What's it like going through it all again? I spent so much time helping other people do their stuff that I lost that focus on all the work that I already did that nobody know about. You know what I mean? And then because the tapes took so long to find that when I start to listen and stuff, I say, these tapes need me like I need them. So I'm in it to win it. So I'm representing the whole catalog and it sounds amazing. It's the same sound because the good thing is the mixes was never the issue because the mixing was a live mix under certain vibes. 
but to be able to pull that mix apart, you know, and set it back together, it makes me just say, wow. <laughs> it's just where I want to be. I have stuff with Leroy Sibbles, Max Romeo, Clive Hunt, Scratch, um, Johnny Osborne. It's just a lot, of, a lot of stuff that needs to be presented. Even all I get is a handshake and a smile. I'm still going to be happy. When you look back over your whole career and all the things that you've achieved and all the incredible people that you've met, that you've facilitated, the music that you've made, what's the proudest moment? Where I'm at right now, it takes away a lot of things that I probably would have been thinking. But for some reason, I continuously feel like this is the best time of my life. I get the opportunity at this age to be able to hear and do the best I can for the things that I love to present, for love or for money, I'm in that. I could sit off. I first experienced sitting in the same room, thinking and listening and telling myself, wow, I catch myself smiling on my own and just like really feel like I try so hard to get it to where I want it. And I begin to feel that. And because I feel so good about the presentation, I'm stuck in that groove right now. A lot of stuff is in there that never been heard by no audience. You know? and the people I work with, I learn from just about everybody. Oh, well, Lloyd, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and hearing your incredible stories. Very, very inspiring and, yeah. Thank you, thank you. All the best to you guys. Take care. Stay happy. Thanks for listening to Don't Assume. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can like and subscribe on your podcast app. This is an NTS podcast produced by Lizzie King, edited by Femi Oriogan-Williams and with sound recording by Josh Farmer and Zara Vladowski. Mixed by Felix Stock. Music composed by Jennifer Walton. This podcast was made possible thanks to NTS supporters. Become a supporter today for access to additional podcast content, live track lists, access to a supporter-only Discord and newsletter and a shop discount. 50% of supporter proceeds go direct to NTS resident DJs. Find out more at nts.live slash supporters. Mm-hmm.